and welcome to episode 19 of This Turbulent Priest, a podcast hosted by me, Father Ed Tomlinson, a Catholic priest of the Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham, based in Pembury, a village in Kent, in England. As those of you who listen to my autobiographical episodes will know, I finished an Anglican curacy in Essex before moving to the parish of St Barnabas in Tunbridge Wells. And it was there I served for nearly four years before becoming Catholic. And during that time, I served two Anglican bishops. First, the legend that is Monsignor John Broadhurst today. At that time, he was the Bishop of Fulham, and he had a pastoral oversight for the traditionalists in the local area. But also, I served under the Bishop of Rochester, that very ancient diocese once presided over by St John Fisher, no less. That was Michael Nazir Ali. We always got on very well as bishop and priest, he an evangelical and me an Anglo-Catholic. We shared a real desire for fidelity to the gospel, and he always was a very welcome visitor to the parish. Once I announced officially my intention to leave the Church of England, I of course had to go and see him out of courtesy to explain my decision. To say he was sympathetic and understanding would be an understatement. He was incredibly warm and clearly understood full well the reason why I had decided I had to become Catholic, and he really didn't want to stand in my way. So whilst other members of the established church were a little frosty in those early days, an understatement if ever there was one, he was really very friendly and a great uh, support. Little did I realise that only a few years later he would follow suit, leaving the Church of England to become perhaps one of the most high-profile members of the Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham. I think we're incredibly blessed to have him and his wife Valerie. They are really inspirational Christians, and I hope and pray we're going to make full use of the gifts and of the leadership that he has to offer. But who is he? Well, born in Karachi, He had both a Christian and Muslim family background. He attended a Roman Catholic school, but was raised as an Anglican. An able scholar, he studied at Oxford, at Cambridge and at Harvard. He's fluent in Arabic, English, Persian, Punjabi, Urdu, Hindi, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac and Latin. Phew! And I flunked French. In 1976, he was ordained as a Church of England clergyman, and he first of all worked in Karachi and Lahore 
before becoming the youngest bishop in the Anglican Communion, overseeing the Diocese of Raywind in West Punjab. His outspoken defence of the Gospel led to threats on his life, and Archbishop Runcie brought him back to England for the safety of his family. Then he became an assistant bishop to the Archbishop of Canterbury and famously helped to organise the Lambeth Conference of 1988. In 1994, he became the Bishop of Rochester, that seat, as I mentioned, once occupied by St John Fisher. And he also entered into the House of Lords, where he gained a very fine reputation due to his intellect and tact. He was the go-to bishop for many politicians. After the retirement of Archbishop Rowan Williams, he was actually amongst the forerunners to succeed him, and was only thwarted due to his robustly orthodox faith, which didn't sit well in a fast liberalising body. In 2021, he dramatically resigned his Anglican orders and stepped back from being a bishop of the Anglican Communion to join the Holy Catholic Church via the Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham. And I'm proud to say he offered his very first ever Easter Mass here at St Anselm's amongst our congregation. It was a very joyous and auspicious day. Last week, he came to Pembury again to deliver the latest in our series of lectures. So with no further ado, I shall hand over to him. Lovely. Welcome. There's no nonsense about Father Ed, is there? I mean, uh, uh, you see what you get. And uh, thank you for that uh, brief introduction. I mean, sometimes introductions are longer than the talk itself. Uh, but um, Father Ed wants to get down to business, and so do I. I do apologize, by the way, for keeping on my coat. I, I, I'm sure there is sympathy in the pews. I mean, the church isn't cold, but uh, you're not wearing a coat. But uh, I think I'll keep mine on for the time being, anyway. Uh, well, this, well, it wasn't hot, actually. It was one degree there when I left. So, <laughs> so but discretion is the better part of valor, uh, <clears throat> I've always felt. Um, thank you very much, indeed, for uh, your introduction. Um, why be a Catholic today was the subject that I chose, um, Father Ed, when he invited me. Uh, because um, on the face of it, of course, the answer uh, to the question might be, well, we shouldn't be. You know, for the first time uh, in centuries, the census has returned a figure uh, for Christians that's below 50% in this country. I think that is a matter for, of great concern, should be a matter of great concern to us. And... Um, institutional abuse of uh, young people, of children, is not limited to the church, of course. Uh, it is found in many other institutions. And it's not limited, by the way, to the Catholic Church either. I can give you chapter and verse on that. But uh, these are concerns that people come up with 
when they're considering the faith. Um, and so the question is worth asking, why be a Catholic today when so many people are not wanting to be uh, Christian or Catholic, uh, to be more specific, in any way? And what I want to suggest tonight is that there are some very good reasons for being a Catholic today, for being a Christian today. So it was uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the great uh, existentialist, who said um, human uh, life is an accident. Uh, the universe has no meaning and there is no destiny uh, that uh, there is for us or the world because there is no God. People miss out that last bit often when they're reporting Sartre, because there is no God. If there had been a God, life would have meaning. The universe would have destiny. And so in that sense, the radical existentialists like Sartre are right. That if you rule out God, then of course life becomes meaningless. Of course... Um, the universe uh, seems an accident. Of course, there doesn't seem to be any purpose for which we are living. And so, uh, why be a Catholic today? I want to begin by saying uh, that uh, Sartre is right, of course, in one sense, but he's wrong in the, in the true sense because uh, God provides the reason for our living. And uh, the Catholic faith uh, has always taught uh, that because there is a God, we can see the universe as a marvelous gift, as a gift to us in creation. Now, I don't want at this time to go into uh, the hows and the wherefores of creation but simply to affirm the marvel of creation, the marvel of the universe, for instance, um, how it is so finely balanced that it doesn't explode away into nothingness or implode into nothingness, on the other hand, how exactly the right elements that are needed for its existence are there and indeed for the emergence of life. Um, I've been very interested in how uh, a Christian and in one case Catholic uh, life scientists have seen the incredible complexification of life. So life didn't just emerge, it began to get complex at a very early stage. So the irreducible complexity of the cell, for instance, uh, is something uh, that we could think about. And then Simon Conway Morris, a Cambridge uh, biologist, has pointed out uh, how uh, life not only develops, uh, but it develops in a way where different organisms converge. The um, cooperation that there is uh, between species and within species, you know, we've got used to Attenborough's nature red in tooth, uh, red in tooth and claw, but in fact, uh, there is quite a lot of cooperation also uh, in nature. 
the emergence of consciousness, I mean, something that will never uh, be reduced merely to the physical, uh, and then of self-consciousness and of moral awareness. I mean, we'll come to that in a moment. All of those things are amazing, and we cannot cease to be amazed by God's creation. The more we consider it, uh, the more amazing it becomes. But we also know that there hath passed a glory from the earth. I think that was Tennyson. That something has gone wrong. So there's not just creation, but there's also corruption of creation. We are more and more uh, aware, of course, of such corruption uh, in our day for which uh, we are responsible. Uh, And these two aspects have to be held together in any assessment of human life and of the world as it is. So we are not exactly as we were made by God. Uh, We have, to some extent, become what we made ourselves. So how do we uh, then uh, make sense of creation uh, and of the corruption that we find uh, all around us? And this is where uh, we come to revelation. God has revealed himself to us. And this revelation has many different aspects uh, to it. So, first of all, uh, God has revealed uh, himself to us in creation itself. Uh, That uh, when we properly consider the nature of creation, uh, we get to some sense Uh, of an agent well beyond our limited understanding. Uh, John Lennox, the mathematician in Oxford, uh, pointed out some time ago that uh, scientists, and indeed we ourselves, the general public, often mistake description for explanation. You see, they think that if you describe the universe, if you describe some aspect of it, You've explained it, but of course you haven't because the ultimate explanation uh, lies in this uh, great uh, agent uh, beyond our ken, but someone we need to know. So uh, there is uh, that revelation in creation. There's also the revelation in our hearts, in the hearts of all human beings. We've been made for God. We've been made Um, to know God and to worship him, homo adorans, that is what we are. And if we don't worship the true God, we end up worshiping false gods. Uh, But we still need to worship uh, someone or something. Um, The testimony of our conscience, of our hearts, of our minds, can also uh, bring us to a sense of God revealing himself to us. Uh, The fathers thought uh, that um, there was also what you might call vestigial special revelation among the peoples of this world. That somehow in every culture, in every climate, among every people, God had somehow revealed himself, however much that original revelation had become obscured, 
by human waywardness and ignorance and so forth. But of course, uh, the church uh, has taught and continues to teach uh, that God has uh, revealed himself definitively in the events uh, that are recorded in the Bible. This you might call salvation history, the history of God's saving acts, his saving work. Of course, uh, this saving work uh, has to do with the choice of a particular people. Um, A very odd choice in some ways. Uh, Sort of bunch of nomadic tribes wandering around the Middle East, uh, frequently enslaved, despised by the great empires uh, around them. Uh, And yet, uh, quite remarkable how the history of Israel uh, can be seen. So many people have tried to eliminate this people from the face of the earth and from history, uh, even up to modern times, as you know, but have failed. The miracle of Israel, George Steiner, the Cambridge literary figure, uh, calls it the miracle of Israel. How odd of God to choose the Jews, said Ronnie Knox, Monsignor Knox. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but odder still of those who choose a Jewish God, but spurn the Jews. So, so uh, God's revelation, of course it is recorded in the scriptures in words, but actually uh, salvation history is about God's act, how God acts to save his people from slavery in Egypt, from exile in Babylon, and so on. Um, this um, revelation is brought uh, to a climax in the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father Ed was saying we are still in Christmas tide. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think certainly up to the uh, feast of the presentation uh, we should be uh, because we are remembering that great act of God in the incarnation uh, of uh, Jesus. Uh, the Christ being born of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So this is where his revelation is fully defined and comes uh, to a climax. Salvation history, uh, as I say, points to Christ and points to God's people, Israel. But... uh, the Bible also teaches that this salvation history is, uh, it, it is unique, of course, but it also allows us to see how God is working everywhere. So the salvation history, capital S, capital H, if you like, allows us to recognize salvation histories, small s, small h. Um, God has not left himself without witness anywhere, as St. Paul Uh, says uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, shows us remarkably how this is so, uh, that even while uh, the Bible is concentrating on the history of the people of Israel, 
it is aware of their universal mission. They are not called to privilege, but they are called to service, just as we are, to witness uh, to the true God among the nations. Um, the remarkable uh, passage in, uh, uh, in Isaiah uh, about God's work among the nations, and it ends with, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. In the book of the prophet Amos, uh, for instance, um, where uh, there's a danger of Israel uh, taking its stand on its privilege as God's chosen people, becoming uppity in other words. And God says, well, you know, uh, I am the one who also has worked with the Ethiopians, the people right on the margins of the known world at that time. I am the one who brought the Syrians where they are and the Philistines, the traditional uh, enemies of Israel. Um, tonight we've heard of Melchizedek. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing that a Canaanite priest king, the very thing that large parts of the Bible are hostile to, should be seen as being the Eucharistic minister to Abraham the patriarch himself. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, is said of Christ. Uh, and the letter to the Hebrews, uh, which you heard, uh, repeats that. And the ministerial priesthood, uh, of which we are part, uh, Father Ed and I and many others, uh, is of course participating in that high priesthood of Christ according to the order, not of Aaron and the Levites, but of Melchizedek. So uh, salvation history uh, has many different uh, aspects to it. Uh, and uh, the Bible, uh, in its telling of this history, allows us to see how God is working in many different ways among many different people. Of course, we have to respond to God's offer of salvation. Uh, and um, I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but this question of response is fundamental to the message of the Bible and to the story uh, of the church. How we respond to what God is doing, to God's acts in history and in people's lives. That response is itself a work of grace. Um, it has to do um, with God awakening in us uh, the possibility of response. Nevertheless, that response is also ours. And um, at the time of the Reformation, you know, there was a great division about exactly how uh, people are accounted uh, being right with God. Uh, thankfully now, uh, so much scholarship uh, has shown that um, it is possible to say that we are accounted right with God purely uh, through God's grace and through the faith that awakens uh, in us because of that grace. 
Uh, and that, that is true. I mean, that has actually always been the teaching of the church. Uh, the Council of Trent, meeting in the wake of the Reformation, taught that it is only by grace through faith that people are saved. But faith is never alone. I mean, that is the point. So, along with salvation comes sanctification. So, how we are accounted right with God leads to becoming right with God, you see. Um, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that uh, Christ became our righteousness. Oh, thank you very much, Father Ed. That's very thoughtful of you. Um, So that we may become the righteousness of God. Christ suffered for us. Um, Christ um, died for us uh, so that we may become the righteousness of God. So there is both being made right, which is not of our doing, and our becoming right, uh, which has to do, of course, with God, but also with our response. So if you could hold those things together, I mean, uh, creation and the corruption which has to be put right, God's putting right of that uh, through salvation history um, and uh, the holiness that comes about because of God putting right uh, what has gone wrong. Now, the question is, how do people hear about this? How do people come to be Catholic Christians? How do they come to Christian faith and to Christian life? And here I want to alert uh, ourselves to what the Church has called Apostolic Tradition, capital A, capital T, or Apostolic Teaching, you might say. So as this apostolic tradition or apostolic teaching is transmitted from person to person, from culture to culture, uh, from community to community, within families, that's very important, the transmission of this tradition in the family, by the way. Um, As this happens, uh, people uh, come to faith in Christ and toward God has done in Christ and throughout the story of his people. Um, And there is continuity, of course. Uh, People of different ages, of different cultures, recognize in each other uh, what God has done among them and how they have responded to God. But there are also differences. Um, People of... Uh, different uh, kinds notice different things in this great treasure that we have. Um, So uh, it doesn't surprise us, for example, uh, that the um, uh, African-American people uh, uh, were um, impressed, uh, that's a weak word really, but greatly impressed by the story of the Exodus of an enslaved people being liberated, of being freed. And the liberation trajectory in the Bible is as important as the creation one, by the way. So here were an enslaved, of course, enslaved people, people who are oppressed. 
I've just come back from Pakistan, as Father Ed was saying, and Christians are more and more uh, persecuted there in many different ways. Of course, they see the exodus trajectory of liberation as very important for them. Um, Pope St. John Paul II used to say uh, that women uh, have a particular way of reading the Bible. He called it the feminine genius. Uh, well, I know, I mean, uh, Valerie reads the Bible in a particular way. I read it in a different way. Uh, I certainly learn from how she reads the Bible. Uh, my hope is that uh, maybe she can also learn from the way I read it, but that's a disputable fact. But, uh, but that's, you know, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't think that... Um, Equality means no difference. We are distinct uh, as women and men, as people from different backgrounds, and we will notice different things in the great tradition. Now, um, what about the new? You see, the Orthodox churches, and I really admire them for this, greatly value tradition with a capital T. Uh, and uh, they remind us very often of how to do this. But um, I hope this is, this is a fair comment. Um, their valuing of tradition has not generally equipped them to engage with what is new, with new knowledge. Now, there are some claims to new knowledge that are false. I mean, I think we need to recognize that. But there, are, there is new knowledge. I mean, we now know far more about the early embryo uh, than did our forefathers. I mean, that has huge implications for the church's teaching, by the way, on the dignity of the human person. But... The fact is we, we do have new knowledge. We know far more about the universe than people did even a hundred years ago. Uh, we know a lot more about the workings of the human mind. Um, that's a controversial subject, but we, we do. And there is such a thing as new knowledge. And the question is, for many of us, uh, for all of us, how to engage the great tradition with this new knowledge. And I think this is where St. John Henry Newman is most important because he has given the Catholic Church a great gift uh, of uh, engaging uh, new knowledge with the tradition in a way that is principled. So uh, in his uh, work on the development of doctrine, uh, which actually we might also call the doctrine of development, because, uh, you know, both apply. Uh, but Newman said, yes, we must uh, engage with new knowledge. And of course, as an Oxford don, he was aware even then in the 19th century of uh, what was beginning to happen, uh, the great expansion of uh, people's horizons. But we must do this, he said, first of all, so that the vigor of the gospel and its truth is conserved. You see. 
the very nature of the gospel. I'll say something more about that in a minute. Uh, secondly, that there should be continuity of principle. So what the church says today about how to treat the early embryo, for example, must be continuous with what the church has said about the protection uh, of children from the very beginning. With the babe in the womb, uh, that wonderful encounter between Elizabeth and the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, where it is quite clear that uh, John the Baptist is responding in Elizabeth's womb to Jesus in Mary's. So you have persons already. Um, the church's uh, unfailing opposition to abortion uh, as it was carried out in those early days and even to things like female infanticide where um, female children usually were left exposed to die or to be picked up by some sympathetic person passing by who would then bring them up. Continuity of principles. Uh, conservation of the gospel. Um, anticipation of the future. There is such a thing as a slippery slope. So uh, <clears throat> uh, take this question of assisted dying. Uh, we always begin with hard, hard luck stories. Here is someone who is allegedly suffering unbearable pain. I mean, those who uh, work in the hospice movement tell me, I know there are physicians present here, that uh, it, it's very rare that pain cannot be managed or relieved. Uh, but from those hard luck stories, then, you go on to uh, stories that are less obviously hard luck. Um, and then, as in Belgium now, and now possibly in Canada, uh, to killing people because they're mentally ill or depressed. I suppose depression is a kind of mental illness. And, I mean, where is this going to end? So, anticipation of the future. When we are thinking about moral questions, we always have to think, what will be the next step? Where is this leading? Um, this is also true, of course, about gender identity, for instance. That's in the news these days. It is true about the nature of marriage and its expression and its relationship uh, to uh, procreation. I mean, all of those things. So, uh, I think what we can learn from Newman is, yes, the tradition has to engage with new knowledge, but in these particular ways. Now, um, how do we know when we think of some kind of engagement between new knowledge and tradition, whether what we have decided is actually authentic in terms of what the church has always taught. Some people say um, that it must uh, be uh, coherent with and corresponding to uh, what has always been believed everywhere by all people, you know, semper ubique uh, et ab omnibus, that's the Vincentian canon. Um, 
Yes, I, uh, that's a good way of thinking about it. But um, I often um, am reminded that there was a time, I think it was Athanasius who said, the whole world has become Aryan. You know, so the, nearly the whole church throughout the world had fallen into heresy, except for Athanasius and some other, a few, and, and the church in Rome, which of course repeatedly gave him refuge when he had to flee his see in Alexandria. Um, the whole world has become Aryan. What happens then to what the whole world has believed? Um, then some people say uh, scripture is enough. The Bible alone, sola scriptura. But then how is the Bible to be interpreted? Um, there are now 37,000 Protestant denominations according to the World Christian Encyclopedia. Many of them have come into existence because of a different interpretation of some passage or other of the Bible. So this is why uh, the church needs uh, an authentic teaching authority, a proper magisterium, which can take account of new knowledge, which can take account of tradition, which can take account of the work of scholarship. But then when it has done so, uh, to say this is what the Bible means, this is what is the faith of the church. Um, now the tradition, in addition to uh, this engagement with new knowledge, also has to be conveyed in different cultures uh, in different ways. So Professor Lamin Sane, who was a friend of mine, he was a convert uh, from Islam to the Christian faith and then eventually uh, to the Catholic Church and became a great Catholic theologian. He died recently. Uh, he coined this expression, uh, the translatability of the gospel. So uh, he said the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and of God's work among us is such that it can be translated into any culture, into any language, among any people. Uh, in this sense, he said, uh, Christianity has no sacred language. It has original languages, of course, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. It has venerable languages like Latin or Armenian or Coptic or whatever. But it has no sacred language in the way that Islam does. It's, you see, uh, Islam also is a worldwide faith and we find it in many different parts of the world and cheek by jowl with Christians in many places. Uh, but Arabic is, whatever people's language might be, Arabic is central to their faith. They must read the Quran in it. Uh, the call to prayer, I've been hearing it five times a day the last uh, uh, ten days or so, <laughs> is in Arabic. Um, and um, uh, the ritual prayer, the salat, is in Arabic and so on. And that's non-negotiable. Uh, Sane is saying Christianity is not like that. It is translatable into every culture, into, among every people, into every language. And that is so, and that is part of the church's continuing 
missionary mandate, as uh, John Paul II called it, the continuing missionary mandate of the church. And the engagement with culture, I mean, we can learn from the past. Pope Benedict used to uh, uh, say that uh, the encounter with, uh, that Christian faith had in the early days with Hellenism, or what he called purified Hellenism, was providential. I think that's, that's correct. Uh, and from that encounter and many other kinds of encounter, sorry, I beg your pardon, I've done something here. I've inadvertently... No, no, you're all good. Am I all good? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> the um, continuing missionary mandate of the church um, that John Paul uh, II uh, was so keen on uh, that the gospel continues to engage uh, with many different cultures and that those providential encounters of the past are guidelines for us about how to engage with culture today. Uh, so, for instance, uh, the church's engagement with uh, the Hindu intellectual tradition or the Buddhist intellectual tradition, uh, he felt, still has to take place. It has begun, of course, in many ways, uh, the Catholic Church in India is a very large church. I mean, I visited it recently and I was amazed at uh, how large it is and what it is doing. But that uh, engagement uh, must take place. Uh, the... However, there are dangers also in this uh, engagement with culture, whether in the West or in other parts of the world. Uh, so what is it or how is it uh, that the church can be prevented from capitulating to culture. See, that is the great danger in the West at the moment, is for the church simply to capitulate to the demands, very strong demands of culture in the West. And uh, many Anglican and Protestant churches have indeed uh, capitulated, which is part of the reason why uh, I am here and Father Ed is here. Um, when God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, as they say. Um, in this, uh, uh, Pope St. John Paul II, in a very important encyclical called Redemptoris Missio, uh, said that there were, he welcomed enculturation, of course, but he said there were two limits to it. One is the nature of the good news itself. Uh, God's creation of the world, our creation in his image, the mandates that men and women were given at the time of their creation about the family and about their stewardship of creation, his preparation of his people, the coming of Christ, uh, Christ's word and work, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, these cannot be compromised, according to him, in any way by the way in which the gospel is mediated in this culture or that culture, this language or that language. So that integrity has to be maintained. The second limit, he said, to inculturation was the need for fellowship among Christians of different kinds, different languages, um, uh, different uh, cultures. 
So, uh, as I stand talking to you, you should be able to recognize the gospel in me and I should be able to recognize it in you. See, this is fundamental. So, uh, some Western uh, Anglican and Protestant churches are saying about things they're doing in terms of human sexuality, for instance. Well, this is our problem. If Africans and Asians don't want to recognize it, that's fine. They can carry on doing what's right for them. But this is not being Catholic, you see. This is being sectarian and possibly schismatical and heretical. So the fundamental point about being Catholic is the recognition of a common faith. St. Augustine of Hippo uh, said that he believed the gospel because the Catholic Church believed it. That is to say it was the same gospel everywhere. Not little bits and pieces that people select because they are their favorites. The uncomfortable bits as well as the comfortable bits. I mean, I think we have to be frank about this. And I hope the discussion will uh, produce some questions uh, about this. Um, <clears throat> the Catholic Church has been fortunate. Well, fortunate is probably not the right word. It's been providential that it has preserved both the sacred deposit of faith, um, the apostolic tradition of which the norm are the scriptures. See, the scriptures are not separate from tradition. Sometimes people have talked like that. They are part of the flow of tradition, but they are the norm. They are the once for all, as Dei Verbum says, and they are by which the church orders all its belief and its life. And the importance of tradition is that that is how the church interprets and passes on, transmits uh, that tradition. So the church has preserved this, uh, the sacred deposit of faith, and it has also preserved the sacred ministry. You know, the sacred ministry is not on the same level as the sacred deposit of faith. The magisterium of the church, the teaching authority of the church, is a servant of the word, not its master. Nevertheless, an essential servant in mediating the word to the world. See, this always has to be kept in mind. And this is why in the liturgy, we've just had the liturgy, the word and the sacrament are kept together in a fine balance. Not just in the readings and the homily, but the antiphons, the prayers, you know, there's so many ways in which word and sacrament are maintained uh, together. Of course, the church is made by the word of God, but the church is also made by the sacraments. You see, uh, baptism, uh, which brings people into the body of Christ, renews uh, people uh, so that uh, they can uh, be right with God and live the Christian life. Uh, the Eucharist, above all, uh, which... Uh, unites people in the receiving of the body and blood of the Lord. Um, every sacrament, ordination. I mean, one of my uh, uh, um, concerns about uh, Anglican and Protestant churches is the way in which 
the full range of the sacramental life of the church is not recognized. So if you, of course, baptism and the Eucharist are fundamental sacraments for the body of Christ. But what about ordination? You see, I mean, Jesus said at the very day of the resurrection, when he met with the, the apostles, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Uh, the Anglican ordination rite actually still uses those words. But what is their meaning? Uh, so here you have both the sacrament of ordination and the sacrament of reconciliation uh, mentioned. And of course in, in many other places. Marriage. You see the one thing that is actually called a sacrament in the New Testament is marriage. Ephesians 5.32 I think it is. Um, so uh, a full sacramental life uh, is very important, uh, not just for our spiritual prospering, but for the very being of the church. The church has to be an institution to some extent, uh, but the church is nothing if it is not a praying church. You see, uh, I mean, uh, this is one of the things that is so strikingly different between the Catholic Church and other churches that whenever you go into a Catholic Church building, you find somebody praying because of the sense of the real presence of Christ in the church. Um, others are becoming meeting halls and social gatherings and so on. And, uh, it's very regrettable, but... You can see why it is happening. A praying church, um, a church uh, that is able to decide on matters that are controversial at this time or another. Able to decide. Um, I mean, when I'm asked uh, why I made my decision, um, of course, there are many reasons. I wrote a 6,000-word article and first things. Uh, but it can really be boiled down to, first of all, uh, that we need a church where decisions that affect everybody can be implemented everywhere. You see, uh, not just in this corner or that corner. Um, so what the church teaches about marriage, for instance, applies everywhere, without exception. And I pray that the church will not lose this uh, gift. Um, the, um, that there should be a common body of teaching. A common body of teaching, not just uh, teaching of the Second Vatican Council or more recent teach, social teachings of the church, they're all very important. But right from the beginning, from the Bible, to the fathers, to the councils, everything, the whole, the whole body of the church's teaching from which we can learn and which we can apply uh, in our lives corporately and individually. Um, and then thirdly, that from time to time, not always, I don't believe in the promiscuous exercise of the magisterium, but there arise times when the magisterium has to say, this is the way, walk in it, not that. 
You see, that is what it's for. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, we give thanks to God that these gifts are available to the Catholic Church. They must not be compromised or weakened, but strengthened in the right sense. Um, of course, uh, we must understand the Catholic faith for our own selves. You see, for our own uh, understanding, our own salvation, our own sanctification. But we also need to understand it for evangelization. To give an account, as St. Peter says in his first letter, to give an account of the hope that is in us. Now, Catholics and indeed other Christians um, are probably quite good at understanding for themselves their faith, uh, but very often not good at giving an account of it to other people, colleagues at work, members of the family, uh, whoever it may be. If you have the gift of writing or of media work, social media is now an enormous sort of open field to commend the faith uh, to people in this way or that. Those two things have to be kept in mind about uh, why it is important to be Catholic. For myself, uh, to end with a personal testimony, um, I am a Catholic of the Bible. Um, the, uh, the Bible is unique, once for all, uh, given um, for us to know of God's saving work in Christ. Uh, as um, Dei Verbum says, uh, it is by which the Church orients all its beliefs and its teaching and its practice. I am uh, a Catholic of the councils of the Church. So we recite the Nicene Creed. I've been teaching actually in the last few days uh, the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds, and it comes as a great surprise to students about how they were actually put together. And the history is interesting. Uh, but the point about the Nicene, so-called Nicene Creed, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, to make an unpronounceable uh, uh, expression, and the Apostles' Creed have nothing in them that is not taught in the Scriptures. And you could add the so-called Athanasian Creed to that as well. Um, the councils of the church, uh, not just the ancient ones, but also the more recent ones, uh, that have taught the faith, that have taught the gospel uh, to people, and which are enormously rich resources uh, that we can call upon. The writings of the fathers... Uh, Pope Benedict, again, used to say that uh, many Christian bodies, many Christian people, recite the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds. But he said, you can't just recite the creeds. You have to ask, what was the faith and practice of the Church that wrote these creeds? And I think this, for Catholic Christians, this is a very important point. Uh, that we uh, must be continuous with the faith of those who wrote the creeds. Um, so Bible, councils, and fathers, 
uh, and also, of course, uh, the sacramental life of the church by which I am continually renewed, whether as celebrant or as recipient uh, of the grace that is actually conveyed by the sacraments, that they are not merely symbols or signs, external signs or, or memorials, but they actually convey the grace that they uh, symbolize, that they present. So those are some of the reasons why it is important to be Catholic today. I look forward to your response. Thank you very much indeed. fantastic lecture. I really liked how Monsignor Michael helped us recognise that the church, to retain credibility, must be enabled to develop healthily, that it might deal with modern dilemmas and cultural questions effectively. Otherwise, we just fossilise, trying to live only by a tradition of past ages. And yet this vital and necessary process of development, which is of course something Newman himself spoke of, needs to be done with total unity and full fidelity to the faith of the ages. That is, if we're not to cave into the spirit of the age and simply dilute the gospel via politicisation and our own worldly agendas. The Protestant era of seeking autonomy where there should be only obedience is laid bare, I think. And it's a message that the bishops of the church throughout the world really need to ponder ahead of the synod in Rome, which strikes this humble village priest to be a little too weighted in favour of a modernist Protestant steer, a way of thinking that is quite opposite, in fact, to the authentic Catholic way. We need something that's going to hold us together in unity and not divide us by looking liberal, Protestant, and dare I say it, modernist. Okay, well, that's it for this week. I hope you'll be back next. God bless each and every one of you, and enjoy Candlemas when it falls next Thursday. Clemens Rector, return.